Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. So I'm Stephanie and I'm here with my beautiful co-host Michelle. Hi Michelle. Hi Stephanie. Um, and we have two extra special guests today because we were so excited about the subject of today's podcast for both good and bad reasons. Um, so I'm here with Jimmy Van, who is of course the Lighthouse Keeper, our producer. Hi, Jimmy. Hi, Steph. <laughs> and I'm also here with Dr. Victoria Flanagan, who is a senior lecturer in the Department of English. Um, Dr. Victoria Flanagan is a specialist in children's literature, and she's also the program director of our Master of Children's Literature. Hi, Victoria. Hi, Steph. So we're here today to talk about the 25th anniversary of Melina Marquetta's uh, young adult novel, Looking for Ella Brandy, which we were shocked to discover this year is turning 25 because it's certainly a book that I think many of us remember from our childhoods. So I thought I'd throw to Jimmy and ask him what he remembers about the book. Well, first of all, it's made me feel very, very old, <laughs> ancient as a matter of fact, because um, I remember being so young and, um, you know, the book was so new to me because it was, there was nothing like it before this particular book. Um, you know, it was talking about uh, an ethnic character going through the HSC, which at the time, I wasn't going through yet because I was only two years behind. But then I ended up doing it again for my HSC, so it was pretty much spot on the right period. I was, you know, the right target audience, except I wasn't female. But that's okay. Uh, <laughs> genders transcended, anyways. It's fine. Uh, and I found the book just absolutely riveting and relatable, and um, just dealing with issues that I thought, you know, these are the sort of issues that I'm going through. Uh, and I, I just loved it. I remember raving it to every single person who would listen to me, which wasn't very many because they didn't have reading. Uh, but, you know, I was just forcing it down everybody's throat. So you have to read this, you have to read this. And so when it was set for the HSC, I was over the moon. Uh, and surprisingly, studying it for the HSC didn't ruin it for me either because I thought, yes, I can still see how it's, it's really relevant to me. Um, my only sadness was that she never ended up writing anything like it again. Yeah, she's written a lot of fantasy since then, I think. Yeah. It's a rare novel that isn't destroyed by mm. studying it for the HSA, so I think, <laughs> I think that's a huge vote of confidence for the book. Um, I was a, I'm a little bit younger than you, but I have a similar, I have a similar history with the book. I found it when I was a early teenager, I think. I'm of the same ethnic background to Josephine Brandy's, and obviously I was going through the same things as well with the HSC and studying and dealing with all those kind of teenager thing so I found it very relatable and I remember absolutely loving it but I have to confess I haven't read it since approximately 1999. So now I'm going to ask Victoria what she thinks of this book because we had a little bit of a chat before and I think she might have some different thoughts about the book. <laughs> Victoria. Well I think like Jimmy's right in saying that it was kind of it was the first big um, example of YA fiction in Australia that had a non-Anglo protagonist. Mm. And I also think you could say it was kind of the start of YA fiction in Australia. It's a genre, it's, it's still a fairly young genre. Mm. Um, and it had been kind of, you could look at, you know, YA novels published in the 60s and the 70s, but we didn't have a big YA field in Australia. Mm. And this was the book that I think convinced publishers that YA was marketable. Mm. It was hugely successful, reprinted multiple, multiple times, won lots of awards, was set on the HSC. Um, and I think, like, I'll acknowledge that it played a really important role in es establishing space for non-Anglo writers to share their stories. Mm. Um, however... However, yes. <laughs> However. The dreaded word. Yeah. Oh, so, like, I have a couple of problems. I have a couple of problems with it. And I did reread it 
this week. And the thing that um, that really struck me was about how in 25 years, the world has changed so much. I mean, it's quite funny to hear her talking about living in Glebe, which is where ethnics and working class people live. <laughs> not anymore, Josie, not anymore. That's so funny um, because that's exactly where my family grew up. Yeah. <laughs> well, it I was mean, the ethnic area. <laughs> yeah, but things have, like, things have, have really changed. changed totally changed um so that was interesting and i also think that you know gender wise things have changed but if i had two issues with the book one one would be that i find it's gender politics really repugnant Mm -hmm. i think that it's about like all ya it's about like the young a young teenage protagonist you know search for identity and that process of maturation and i think that in this book that female identity formation is just mapped onto relationships with men Mm. And I hate that. There's her father and there's Jacob and there's John. And basically they are the key people that kind of, you know, function as her transition. I hate the love triangle. Corny. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't the love triangle the staple of YA fiction? I mean, or or a certain kind of YA fiction. I suppose that's unfair to say. Yeah, it just seems lazy and cliched to me. But the other thing that I really hate is its racial politics. I think that um, I think this is a book about assimilation, and I think there's certain things um, like the fact that her father, Josie's desire is to be upwardly mobile, and and there's a thing here where class is mapped onto race, mm. where she sees that being Italian, being a wog, um, means that you're always going to be doing. Um, that you can't aspire to those higher social classes, which is represented by the white girls at her school. And by John Barton um, as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that what you get is you get Michael Andretti, her father, comes onto the scene, and he's already made that transition through his profession. He's a barrister. He's There's that scene where um, she punches... She punches the... I can't remember the classmate's name. Carly, no, but with I a book. Yeah, yeah, so the yeah, Australia's yeah, a science break, Carly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there's that... She gets my, that's, you know, the, the bonding thing where she calls Michael and asks him to come and represent her at school. And there's a, there's a thing where Carly's dad, I think, is a talk show producer. And they talk, and her, Michael Andretti doesn't recognize Carly's dad. And Carly and her father are kind of indignant. And Josie says, well, my dad only watches ABC and SBS. And there's like a little bit of intellectual elitism. And then because he's a barrister. So there's this kind of, I think he occupies this kind of, you know, transitionary space mm. between the ethnic underclass and the the white Anglo upper class, um, and I think that again, finding out that her mother is also the product of a relationship between um, an Anglo man, Marcus Sanford, and her grandmother. I just think there's all these little and and Josie herself, you know, is set for a career in law. I, I guess also because the 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 Australian man who she had the relationship with was the one who was caring, nurturing, yeah. looked after her, which I guess in in a, in, a, in a sort of that particular situation sort of reinforces that idea of of a of a, of a sort of a, a, a desirable, you know. Yeah, exactly. And suggests that she's got kind of like more legitimate claim to move into that into that upper. Or so that, or that it's, or that it's of benefit, I guess, yeah. leaving behind, you know, sort of those Southern Italian traditions. Yeah, exactly. Um, is, and is, again, is it's a, a man. Yeah. So you've got this, the, like the Italian culture represented as really patriarchal, mm. which Josie is critical of to an extent. But then you get it kind of reinforced again through 
through her past and through her relationships with men, I just I find it hugely problematic. And whether or not there there are sort of because obviously I don't think that Australian culture Anglo Australian Anglo culture is any less patriarchal no. depending on what you choose to represent. And perhaps there wasn't enough of a vision of yeah. you know, sort of I mean there was I think that scene in McDonald's where the guy tries to kiss her or force her you know sort of yeah, yeah. get back at her. But there were there I just can't think whether there were enough you know, sort of counter examples to, you know, so that you weren't thinking, well, you know, sort of it's the Italian culture that's, you know, sort of problematic, patriarchal, repressive, all of those sorts of things and whether or not mm. there was an Australian, you know, sort of... I think um, Jacob is a bit problematic too yeah, as a well, character. Yeah, that's right. Because there's a sense in that scene mm. um, that he's asserting some kind of physical presence to, yep, to and to her. protect her. her. And there's her. another little description in the book later when they go on their first date when they wag school where she talks about the attraction of Jacob as being the fact that he might bash you but then he has these moments <laughs> of... So there's a weird thing. And, like, listen, I, kn- I know it's 1992 and I do think I do think that the world has changed but reading it now with 2017 eyes, I look at it with a bit of horror. Well, I mean, I like I said, I haven't read it since I was approximately 16, 17, um, and I am much older than that now, and it's possible that I would react to it very differently. I did, did remember that I didn't actually respond to the Jacob character very well because he struck me, even as a teenager, because he struck me as, as kind of belonging to that paradigm of the bad boy who you'll reform, mm. you know, who, who, who you're going to through the power of your love is going to be actually a good boyfriend underneath all the kind of gruff ex- exterior. You know, he's got the long hair and he's got the motorcycle and all that. Yeah, the mechanic, yeah. But, yeah. I, think that, I think I might be coming from a different perspective because, you know, being the only male in this room, <laughs> feeling a little bit choked here. Um, but one of the things that I did know, I mean, I responded well to it because it was something that I did observe was happening in our world. You know, maybe wasn't critiquing our world enough and I, and I, I do take that as a fair point. But it was certainly reflecting our world. Mm. Um, I remember the girls... Uh, in my school were dating the boys who were bad boys who were <laughs> Jacob type you know yeah. that was the type that they were looking for so you know if we are critiquing it maybe what we're critiquing is the world back in the 90s during this particular period mm, rather possibly, than yeah. the, the text itself uh, and, as and a whole and in actual fact we do have that end where I mean you know sort of she does sort of walk I mean it's it's not that sort of resolution where she walks away with John or Jacob she actually walks no. away with, with you know a, a, a sort of a sense of contentment at being alone mm. and okay with that and, and, and being on her own terms as opposed to sort of, um, which I think um, and, and there is that sort of little sort of national matriarchy I guess between the mother um, and daughter mm. where you know you can see that that is something that even from the very start, even with all of those wonderful sort of mother-daughter arguments um, Josephine's anxious to preserve in the face of a, of a father figure who might disturb it mm-hmm. um, which which I guess you know because it because it is it's, it's a fascinating glimpse into that um, you know sort of that that psyche and you know sort of I mean but, but I would think that even today that so many of the really popular um, fiction with I'm not so much sure about young adult but you know sort of the popular fiction like um, the the dreaded um, what's the terrible sadistic Fifty Shades. Of yeah, it's still <laughs> yeah that one I haven't actually, but I, I think it still plays into that idea of you know sort of women being mapped onto men, Twilight, mm. you know all so that's that's still very much a very sort of I think prevalent mm. sort of attribute of a lot of popular fiction, which you know sort mm. of that idea of you know sort of women craving you know that um, you know sort of 
vampire or that <laughs> you know bad boy yeah. yeah yeah which um is is probably sort of that's i guess symptomatic mm. really i think um, that the slight problem though is that looking for Ella brandy was always held up as an example of kind of high culture literature it won lots and lots of awards like a, like so it's quite a you know and set for study on the hsc which is kind of confirmation of its of its status so I think that, so rather than, you know, just something that's reflecting mm. popular attitudes, I think it was really lauded as, as good literature. Children should read, yeah. young adults should read this. Yeah, you know, and it's got all these yeah. endorsements from these cultural bodies. I mean, I can't remember all of the awards, but there were, and it won the Multicultural Award, which was a really short-lived children's book. Mm. I think it ran for about three years. Mm. So it was really, it was really held up as good literature. I think that's how it was marketed, certainly, to me, because um, it had been out for a few years when I got to high school, mm. and it was certainly, you know, empowering kind of literature for girls. You know, you should read it, especially feminist. because... Yeah, feminist, and especially um, because there were lots of um, students in my school that were the same cultural background, and so it was it was certainly seen as, you know, the you on the page for the first time. Um, and so... Certainly, I kind of latched onto it as an example of, oh, I can see my family reflected in this in ways that I hadn't ever seen my family reflected in, in children's literature or YA literature before. Yeah, and I think, like, I mean, again, like, to give it credit, because it's not just a terrible... I don't want to just say it's a terrible <laughs> book and be, you know, just the little Grinch here. Um, but I think that idea where she really explicitly talks about her hybrid cultural identity, about mm. sitting on the margins. She she talks about not being quite Italian enough, not being quite white enough. Mm. And there's and, and I think like that was a really interesting thing to thematize, which hadn't really been thematized before in children's literature, to talk about how a child of second generation or she's a third generation mm. migrant grapples with that that mm. kind of cultural hybridity. I think is is really interesting, and I still think that there's that's something in Australian YA that hasn't been done that effectively. And you know, we've, that, we've still yeah, got a problem with how yeah. how we how we allow kids to make sense of who they are. I mean, I think again, like the Australian cultural landscape has changed quite a lot because mm. the other thing that I found quite funny when I was reading it was that that kind of racism that's directed towards Italians, Greeks, Lebanese has totally shifted. Now, yeah, now nobody talks about wogs anymore. <laughs> you know, and that thing yeah. of being embarrassed about your Italian food. <laughs> yeah, no. not happening anymore. But, you know, I remember being being embarrassed in that in that exact yeah. same way. And now it just seems ludicrous because it's the trendiest food out there. So, yeah. yeah, it certainly is a reflection of its time. But I also think it was quite well-timed because in the 90s, that was when the kind of second or third generation of, of, um, of immigrant was, you know, growing up. You know, and certainly I was surrounded by people who were in the same kind of boat as me, you know, um, children of the 60s kind of wave of migration um, mm. who were then kind of grappling with, okay, so I hear this at home and I hear this at school and where do I quite fit in? So it, it made mm. sense to me at the time. But, yes, I agree now. The idea of anybody being racist towards anyone of, of Italian heritage is, is kind of yeah. almost ridiculous. <laughs> and, you know, bringing in pasta to school, come on, I would be the most popular girl in the class now. <laughs> <laughs> but still that thing of how how you how like a child deals with cultural hybridity mm. I think is just you know in this current discussion about Australian values for like citizen citizenship tests yeah, and things absolutely. like that I think that as a we don't quite have a clear no picture of of how to deal with that and I think again I just put on my like children's literature hat and say that if you've if you've got a novel 
that ostensibly wants to explore cultural or ethnic otherness, you can't do it very well from a first-person narrative perspective because, by definition, the reader aligns themselves with Josie. Mm, so you, And I think that what you do is then you assume, because of the way that Josie, you know, she's really critical about her culture, she's constantly comparing herself to other... But I think that perhaps an Anglo reader identifies with Josie and says, oh, she's pretty much the same as me. Mm. And I think that's a bit problematic too because it simplifies what it is to be... It simplifies what it means to be, you know, culturally excluded or culturally marginalised. And, um, again, like I am being a bit uncharitable because I wouldn't really expect that of a novel from the 90s. Mm. But I think you get much more interesting kind of portrayals now if you want to explore cultural difference then incorporating multiple perspectives is Mm. a really effective way of doing that Mm. because essentially what you get is you get Josie's voice that drowns out you know everyone else's yeah and I also wonder too you know she's very kind of um from what I remember anyway she's very worried about things like bringing in food to, to school and so forth um and I do wonder how much of that is actually her kind of reading too much into things or um, there is actually kind of racial prejudice and how the people around her actually view her as the kind of third generation Australian so there seems to me kind of not that I'm saying that racism doesn't exist because obviously it does but um, you don't really see outside her to see Steph there is that horrible scene (laughs) when she and Jacob are sitting on the beach at Manly (laughs) and he comments on the, the foreignness of her body yeah, that's a bit problematic. I yeah, remember I really... that actually too. Yeah, and says, "Oh, I've got used to the way you look." <laughs> I kind of read it and thought, "Seriously? <laughs> like, ser- like that's really? what all girls hope a boy says to them." <laughs> <laughs> it starts off with, "I realise that beauty is only skin deep, and I've got used to the way you look." And I don't know quite know what he's referring to there. I don't quite know the strangeness of. I th- I thought he was referring to her darkness. Yeah, yeah, possibly. And I just... Oh. But, I mean, the whole... Sex is another really problematic thing in yeah. this novel. And, again, okay, it's like 1992, but this is a book where her dad lectures her on 17-year-olds aren't emotionally responsible enough to be able to cope with sex. And this is a novel about... It is totally about celibacy. Mm. And I find that... Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a personal bugbear of mine because mm, I yeah. write about representations of um, gender and sexuality, but I think that we, we luckily she le- leaves the book a virgin is, is what yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah and you've got her dad telling her and then Jacob of course Jacob tries to initiate sex and she you know repels him and it's a yeah good girls keep their legs shut yeah. And I, I, yeah, and I think, yeah, that was certainly. I think that was certainly characteristic of the literature of the time. It was. I, I remember it getting was. that message from pretty much everything I read at the time yeah. that that was the, the the road you never travel down. Oh, that is still <laughs> that is still yeah. a message in YA. But mm-hmm. the thing about YA, if you think about that, um, the children's literature, it functions differently to adult literature because. Mm. A lot of the time, children are reading, or I don't want to say just children, adolescents, Mm. are reading about things they've never experienced before, and books offer them kind of normative models. Mm. It lets them know, like, you know, how might girls achieve agency or be empowered? Um, And what you get, not surprisingly, is that 
yeah, good girls keep their legs shut. Mm. Well, I, I'm just having a flashback because I'm I'm the oldest person in the room, so I, I completely and utterly missed um, looking for Alabama because by the time that came out, it was just completely, you know, I was in well into my twenties. Right. Was, yeah. You know, um, but the books that I have emblazoned in my mind are Judy Bloom. Oh, you oh, know, and, just, and the two things that I say, remember Bloom, yeah. is the sex and the sex with periods. That, oh, that is the forever, forever. If you forever. ever want to get turned yeah. off sex forever, you read forever. <laughs> we passed it around at school. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. we did too. We thought yeah. it was fascinating, but it's yeah. awful. It's not about, yeah. But the thing that bothers me, I, I totally understand if children's literature is going to have a socialising function, that you want to teach young girls that, well, at least you want to teach them about birth control, but if you want to <laughs> teach them to keep their legs shut, okay, that's all right. But at the same time, there exists in YA whole genres devoted to rape. Mm. So what you get is you get representations of sexual trauma and sexual abuse and you get no representations of anything positive. Mm. And I think that if girls, if young girls are reading that, and we were just talking on the way down here, um, that things are changing a little bit. And I was talking about an, uh, a recent YA novel by um, an Australian novelist called Erin Goff where there is the goddamn sexiest kissing scene I have ever read between <laughs> two girls. Yeah. Um, but when I read it, what struck me was... You just never, you never read stuff like this. The message is, is either keep your legs shut or if you do have sex, bad things are going to happen. Yeah. And I think, yeah. Well, I mean, I loved Buffy growing up as a teenager and that was kind of the message <laughs> yeah. of Buffy too, you know, yeah. like sleep with your boyfriend and he will literally turn evil. Yeah. And I mean, I, yeah. I, I absolutely loved the a Buffy Angel. A message many mother has yeah. tried to instill in their daughter. <laughs> I absolutely loved the Buffy Angel storyline, but when I look back now, I think, my God, you know, <laughs> all of these messages around about, like, the dire consequences. The world you, is going to end. The world is going to end if you slip up once and accidentally yeah. have sex with your boyfriend. It's amazing. It's so retrograde. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I, th I think because I read this mostly last night and I'd never read it. <laughs> um, and I was just, when, when you said that this was sort of, um, you know, lauded as, as, as literature, and I was a little bit surprised. And, and, and I think that the reason comes down to the fact that, you know, sort of more than uh, the need to have, say, multiple vocalizers in order to create a sort of a richer sort of narrative you, you can do so much with first person mm. you know you can you can have you know sort of so much more um you know sort of unreliability and, and i think on the level of prose it's mm. it's, it's quite basic mm. I, I, I think you know it's quite basic writing was my was my um you know sort of immediate sort of response to the first few pages and you know, sort of, whereas I guess you know, sort of, it's 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 immensely powerful to have you know, sort of, uh, an a, a sort of an ethnic adolescent teenager sort of putting um, Anglo Australians in their own boxes because mm. you know yeah. she effectively does that in mm. a really sort of sassy, sharp way. And I and I thought, well, that's you know, sort of, particularly at the time that she's writing. That is a, a, a sort of a really effective. Moment. Yeah, it was subversive. Um, yeah, you know, because I don't think, it, as you said, that you identify with um, Josephine, and you certainly, absolutely agree with her in her um, sort of her really uh, witty, acerbic mm. evaluation of the people around you. And, and I thought, well, that's that's that was really well done. And I just felt that sort of throughout that there was a sort of a little bit of a, a, a lack of technique for want of a better word I think what you I think what you notice though is actually a kind of a defining um, 
convention of YA fiction because it should be written in the language of teenagers. Yeah. So there's a sense that, that YA fiction speaks to teenagers in language that's familiar, that's colloquial. And I think in terms of... probably. Well, in terms of giving an authentic voice to characters Mm. that they speak the way... So so using language in a way that that mimics the way... I think it was sort of of her language and, you know, sort of was... um, It it had sort of heaps of idiom and all all of that sort of thing. Um, But I guess just maybe in in some of the the, the narratives... Maybe it's just a little bit too much cliche. I don't, yeah. I don't know, you know. And it's filled with really dated pop, popular culture references mm. as well, which were kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, because they're really. <laughs> you know, sort of, um, what was it like? The the, the the music, the clothing, the the car, and, and and you know, sort of. I can't. Can you even imagine driving down? Um, George Street at the moment. Yeah, I don't think that's. No. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, right. Exactly, you can't drive down the <laughs> But I think all of these points to um, the importance of representation. You know, and yeah. having diverse representations of diverse kinds mm. of teenage experiences, because I, you know, I don't know for how I would find this book if I went back and read it now. Mm. I suspect I wouldn't be as in love with it as I was as a, as a 15, 16 year old, um, just because, you know, it's hard to kind of recreate that kind of reading experience. But the reason I latched onto it, I absolutely know, is because I saw my family on the page yeah. and I had never seen my family on the page before. All of the books I had read before were, you know, like English schoolgirls or Americans or, you know, little mm. um, Anglo-Saxon Australian girls running around. I hadn't seen the migrant experience. I hadn't seen, you know, making the tomatoes on a Sunday. Like, oh, my Did God. Did do that? Well, not anymore. <laughs> but, um, but, but they used to. And so, mm. you know, all of a sudden I could latch onto that and go, wow, it's, it's me. And I think we're still having those conversations about the importance of, of representation, mm. especially in YA fiction, because we just don't see that kind of diverse experience represented enough in literature and it's important, mm. you know, if, you, if you're going to give um, writing to adolescents who are still struggling to, you know, figure out who they are, I think it's important that they find some kind of positive reflection of themselves in the pages of, of their reading. Yeah, and, and I think it's sort of that really, um, it, it's really nested in sort of the Australian Sydney context. Yeah, that's in, right. in a, in a yeah. really You can recognise sort of the streets and the, the, the suburbs. Streets, yeah. But also the really particular experience that migrants will have depending on where they go, you know. Mm. And, you know, like I think Australia would have had to have been you know, sort of one of the, the, the hardest places to come in the, in the 50s, you mm. know, in a way that it wasn't, um, you know, sort of even just uh, sort of the distance between sort of a, a America and Australia and also the earlier migration history and all of those sorts of things from Italy and the south to say countries like Brazil and um, you know America, the experience of coming to a country like Australia, which was so isolated and mm. so devoid of, of you know sort of um, alternative cultures and so determinedly shutting their eyes to anything other than sort of Anglo-British mm. culture and and actively because even I mean in England you would have had sort of an appreciation for Italian culture because of the proximity, the travelling to mm. Europe, all of the mythology around Europe. Mm. But in Australia, the bulk of that, you, it was a completely um, sort of raw, unmitigated experience. And I can remember working in an Italian kitchen and the guy, um, the chef, telling me that when he came to Australia, people used to wind down their windows and spit on him. Mm. You know, and, and that's that's only a sh- the, the 50s and the 60s. Mm. Um, you know, so, 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 so I think that um, it's worthwhile pausing on the importance mm. of books that are bold enough to be local. You know, and bold enough to explore mm. those experiences in 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 a way that yes, 
you know, um, makes it perhaps, um, you know, sort of a, a, a relevant to a, in, a, in a more sort of contained or limited way, but also explores things that are incredibly um, sort of important and, and, and sort of unique to particular... Um, and just to add to that too, I mean, the book is also really explicitly uncovering things like the internment camps that Australia had going oh. like post-World War II, yeah. which is a kind of like a, a hidden history that was never in any history book that I read. No. And again, and that was something my family had direct experience of. Mm. My great-grandfather was put in an internment camp in Australia in the, during the war. And so again, you know, just seeing this kind of thing mm. that I had known about because it was part of my family history... Seeing it represented in a in a book designed for teenage girls the was revelatory for me. The, the sugarcane yeah. incidents, because that was a that was absolutely chilling. Because I mean, mm-hmm. the conditions in which um, those sort of migrant workers were subjected to were mm-hmm. horrendous enough, and then to just without any um, you know sort of w- without any uh, ability to refer to a law mm-hmm. to protect you to be taken away. Um, it, it, it's it's unimaginable, and, and then because a lot of Italian women from that generation actually didn't learn English, you know, mm. because she used to work for elderly Italians and uh, women, mm. and so this is in the nineties. They did not speak English. Mm. Their husbands had learned English. Their husbands had died, and then they were left um, in in a in in a, in a culture that had no one to support them because they couldn't do their shopping. Mm-hmm. You know, they they couldn't speak without, um, you know, somebody to translate for them, without somebody to... Mm-hmm. Well, my parents still don't really speak English all that well. Um, so, you know, my sister and I always do the, the translating for them, so mm-hmm. they never really assimilated in that sense. They never you know, picked up the language. My auntie, who lives with us, doesn't speak a word of English mm-hmm. at all. So, you know, it's, it, you know, when I think of these things, I always think of trying to imagine what it would be like for her to live in... Country for like how many years now? Over thirty years, and not being able to communicate with most of the people in yeah, this country. You know, it's just yeah. and even to watch television. Yeah, you know, and it sounds so silly, but just to kind of absorb the culture in some kind of way. Yeah, I mean, we had to yeah. teach her phrases um, just to memorize. Like, you know, if she picks up the phone and somebody speaks in English, she just say, you know, don't understand, hang up. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. You know, we just <laughs> teach her two simple words that she can use, or just say no. Just say no to everything. That's that's the safest way, you know. Say mm-hmm. yes, get into trouble, but no. Well, the worst thing to do is offend somebody. It's fine. Because <laughs> sometimes there's not an acknowledgement of the fact that not everyone is capable of being multilingual in a real sense. Mm-hmm. You know, like there there are real obstacles to to learning a there language. Yeah, and it's a it's a really unusual obstacle because my um, my family are actually multilingual in that they speak multiple Asian languages. Mm. But learning English was almost impossible for them. They went mm. to school and they tried to pick it up and it was just really, you know, my dad speaks about five different languages, mm. but he couldn't pick up English. Same thing with my mum, you know, she speaks about four different languages, but she couldn't pick up English. And it's really odd. And I thought, why is that? And she said it has something to do with the sounds. Mm. She said if you're not mm. trained at an early age to you know, um, make those sounds, like the, the forever... Mm. Uh, regretful th sound for her the, the mm. sound she can't do it <coughs> yeah. every time she does it she ends up spitting all over the place or you know it ends up being duh or whatever it is or just the combination of sounds she says you know mm-hmm. thr is an impossible sound for her to make we don't often have these conversations about no. like how difficult it is still for mm. for migrants and children of migrants as victoria said we're still having these stupid conversations about australian values and All the time, and it is actually physiological as well. It's, mm. it's it's not just cognitive; it's also physiological that there are sounds that are not 
you're not able to produce. Mm. Yeah. Did I, you read I, that research? Just came out yesterday. Well, actually, I know it from experience because oh, yeah. I tried to pick up Arabic, and there are just you know, just, actually, funnily enough, I found French harder than Arabic. I don't know what it is, but I cannot produce mm. the vowels. Like mm. it's just it's just not there for me. And it doesn't matter how much effort I put in. It doesn't matter. You know, I can read it. I can understand it. But my Godfather, I mm. would you know. I would be so humiliated to to, to say it's just... But just yesterday there was an article in The Guardian about how people who are bilingual, um, when you're not speaking your mother tongue, it actually puts a lot of stress on your vocal cords. It does. That's interesting because my mum has actually commented on my voice when I speak in Chinese as opposed to when I speak in English. That it Mm. sounds different. She said it sounds very different. Mm. She said there's something odd that happens to your voice when you transition between languages. And mm. I said, really? It sounds yeah. identical to me. Yeah. And she goes, no, that the tone is very different. Um, and she finds the way I speak English much more difficult to understand yeah. than the way I speak Chinese for whatever reason. So there's there's some sort of transition that happens. I haven't noticed it myself, but she hasn't. To be mm. fair, my Chinese is awful. I'll be perfectly honest. I think it's it's not even just the tone of voice. I think it's also personality. I actually think mm. you can have a different because I, well, I, I just, you know, yeah, you know, like that. There is just there is there is such a a web, a, such a network that goes on in mm. terms of speaking languages, mm. and you know that really facile. Oh, you know, you're in our country, speak our language. It's just the most. I, I just it's, it's the most abhorrent um, attitude. It's and also so ironic because English speakers are notoriously bad for learning second languages. That's so right, it's, yeah. It's a totally unrealistic expectation. But I remember I used to be appalled at my, and so embarrassed by my grandparents because they would do the thing that a lot of um, migrants did, which was, you know, throw in an Italian word in and amongst a sentence that's otherwise English. And they're always loud. And they're always loud they're always and they're always kind loud. of, and they're always, they felt to me like they were kind of embarrassing and over the top and not kind of restrained or kind of quiet in the way that Anglo-Saxon Australians seem to me to be. So I remember just feeling absolutely mortified whenever a friend of mine um, came into contact with anybody in my family. I was like, oh my God, don't don't talk to them, don't don't go near them. And I think this book picks up on that. It does. In this in this kind of really relatable way to me. Do you know my one of my memories is is that my very best friend through primary school was 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 Greek. She was my next door neighbour and we were just inseparable and she was she was a full two years older than me, and I was in, you know, I was in fourth grade. She was in sixth grade, and generally speaking, you don't play outside of your your years. And the thing that I and we were just, you know, we were best friends, so we didn't play with anyone else. We just played together, and because we lived next door, you know, I lived at her house. She didn't live at mine, but I lived at her house. Mm. Um, and l- reflecting back on that, and I never thought of it as a child, but I actually think that she wouldn't have had another friend. Mm. Because, you know, while she was in my life, I didn't have another friend. She mm. didn't have another friend, but I'd moved from Sydney. So, you know, it wasn't expected that I'd have more friends. You know, I hadn't didn't know anyone else. And, um, I, and, I, and I was just thinking that um, I also remember a girl called Miriam Garzak. And this is this is one of those moments that I, I can I just my own daughter's actually now called Miriam, um, but I can still remember assembly and it's emblazoned in my mind, and um, the whole class used to have a movie at the end of the, uh, the assembly, so mm. the whole school would go and sit in the assembly hall, and we'd watch um, sort of the end of year treat movie. Um, and I I just have this memory of Miriam Garzak 
sitting down and nobody being willing to sit next to her because she smelled. And what I remember is Mr. Wong, who was our beloved teacher, but who was also an incredibly, um, you know, sort of, he'd been born in Australia, so, you know, he was this really sort of safe ethnic figure who, you know, in mm. every way, shape and form ticked the right boxes, mm. went and sat next to her. And, you know, I, I, I didn't actively move away from her or anything like that, but it's just one of those memories. Mm. And I think now about her name, I think about the fact that I, I just, I, I remember cooking and, and nobody wanting to be in her group. And when I look back on it, I realise that that was absolutely just racism. Mm. It was just racism. And I, I just, I, I look at that and I think back on that and I just think, my goodness, I feel sick, is what I think. So, yeah, I, like I, I, I remember things like that from school too. But I think if we just, if, if I bring it back to the yeah. book, the fact that it promotes this assimilationist mm. kind of ideology... I think the children's literature does this all the time because what it does is it ostensibly has a kind of an underlying humanist ideology and wants to promote this idea that basically we're all the same. Mm. And I think that that, for me, is really hugely problematic mm. because we're not. And I think that if we taught children not to be afraid of difference, yeah. to to be interested yeah. in, in what's different, to value difference, that we'd have quite different stories and quite different literatures and I think imagination yeah do you think that's still the case in I I mean I don't read I'd read some contemporary way but not a huge amount and I know you obviously do do you think that kind of assimilationist message is still there because I think I'm not sure how much that's a kind of underlying kind of ideology of YA fiction or if it's something that's kind of specific to the 90s do you think that's still there I mean if you looked at something like um 10 things I hate about me by, I think you could you could buy um, Randa. What's the last name? Randa Abdelfatar. Yeah, Randa yeah. Abdelfatar. <laughs> I, I think it's a it's a it's a really similar book to Looking for Alan Brandy. Mm. I think that Randa's book is perhaps slightly different because the implied reader is a racist white person. Yeah. And I and I think I think a lot. Of, I think this gives slightly more. Looking for Alan Brandy gives slightly more insight into Italian culture. Mm. I think that um, Ten Things I Hate About Me gives very little insight into Lebanese... doesn't make any difference between Lebanese Christians and Lebanese Muslims. I, I don't know. Le- I hope Randa's not listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I think that Le- Lebanese culture is reduced to hummus in that book. And I think that... Well, I mean, I th- you hear people all the time. I mean, Paul, the, Pauline Hansen's resurgence in Australian politics yeah. is all about if they can't assimilate, That's right. then they should, you know, get lost. I think it's really a problem. I think that the underlying... I think in children's literature, if we take it back to, like, a literary context, the kind of humanist ideologies about we're all the same, where we're all basically we're constructed... All humans, we're we all humans. We all... We feel the same... Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I think that that can be quite detrimental to um, to cultural hybridity and cultural difference. Mm. And I, I think it's a rare children's book that, manage, that manages to... Um, to explore cultural hybridity or to really promote otherness mm. as a valuable concept. I still think that we're still waiting for that to be written. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, even though, as I said, I, I very much um, related to the cultural kind of specificity of the book, I also had the sense that I don't think I ever lost as a teenager, that the most important thing for me to do was to try and show my friends that I was exactly the same as them. Mm. Um, and that the kind of my cultural background didn't matter. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a. It wasn't about celebrating it or denigrating it. But it was. It just. 
it didn't matter. It was something mm. that was there in the background. So I think that that, that kind of assimilationist perspective was something that I felt as a teenager growing up in the 90s with this Italian background that, that it was it, it was kind of irrelevant almost to to any kind of interaction that I had. It wasn't it wasn't a bad thing. I didn't feel, you know, bad about it, but I also didn't feel like it was special or important or it was just some kind of weird little story in the background that my parents, mm. you know, or my father wasn't born here, my mother was. Um, so, yeah, I think that that was certainly the, the discourse of the time and it's, it's surprising how much it's still the discourse, sadly. I mean, the other, like, Josie speaks Italian in Looking for Brandy. Yeah. But I also think, so I was 16 when this book came out and I grew up with a generation of, um, a generation of migrant kids or second generation migrant kids whose parents were instructed not to speak their mother tongues to them because they'd get confused. Mm. So I have friends who Greek and Italian heritage who don't speak mm. Greek or Italian very well. Christos Siokas yeah. has yeah. talked beautifully about the fact that he, in public, a couple of public occasions when I've seen him talk about the fact that he and his mother can't communicate mm. ever properly because she speaks Greek and his Greek is very poor. Well, I, I did the same thing. I would my, my father in particular spoke to me in Italian. Um, my mother never really did. Um, but my father certainly did, and I just responded in English. It's the, the classic kind of Australian immigrant child experience, mm. or, or children of immigrant experience, rather, um, to to respond in English when your parents spoke in Italian or what or Greek or Lebanese or whatever, because there was such a premium on being Australian. Mm. See, I think probably this is where I related to Ali Brandy a bit more, because I, did, I was forced to speak Chinese to my mm. parents because they refused to speak English and they refused to learn English. Mm. So I had this dual life going on where mm. at home yeah. uh, I had to speak one language uh, and outside of home I had to speak another language. Um, and when this period came out, and when this book came out, it was during a period of my life that um, I think one of the things that you guys were talking about was really interesting about cultural home poetry because I kind of fit into both quite neatly and I could really understand this book because it came at a time when I was transitioning to wanting to fit into the Anglo world Mm. Um, because I was no longer being exposed as a child. Um, all the kind of television I watched were the things that my parents would watch, which would be Chinese serials, mm. television, films, those sort of things. So I grew up with all those sort of values, but at school I had a different set of values being taught as well. And then when I went to high school, I went to a rebellious stage where I just wanted to um, reject mm. my ethnicity, so to speak, and just assimilate. Mm. And so I was in that transition period that Josie was. Um, and I think, you know, by the end of it, I kind of started accepting my ethnicity in the same way that she was mm. beginning to. So I felt that my journey was very parallel mm. to her. So that, you know, um, it was during a period of, of transition. And during that period, we don't quite know who we are. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> when all the media and when, when everything that we know around us um, is promoting a particular image, that's the image we gravitate towards. Mm. Uh, it's only when we get to really know ourselves a little bit better that we start saying, well, you know what, it's okay. Yeah. that I'm this way. You know, it's okay that I can be both. I don't have to choose one over the other, um, so to speak. And it's interesting that this book is, you know, a few years pre the first kind of surge of Hansenism, you know, mm-hmm. and the first kind of um, widespread discussion about um, and, and injection of racism, I suppose, into the kind of central consciousness of Australia. Not that racism wasn't always there, but certainly Pauline Hansen brought those discussions to the forefront. Um, so it, it certainly located very kind of fixedly to its kind of 90s context. It's, it very much reflects what was happening around all of these things in the 90s. And I agree that today it's um, it, it might seem a little bit outdated.
repeated. Um, but I mean, I, I do want to, sorry to interrupt yeah. very quickly, because I, I, we're running out of time, and I wanted to quickly bring it back to a particular point that I think this book actually does do better than some of the things that are currently happening at the moment, which is that you know, it was dealing with this idea of suicide yeah. in the HSC, you know, with the, with the character of John there. Um, and I remember <clears throat> during this period we were having, you know, all our teachers were talking to us about the stress level that HSC causes, and mm. this is why, one of the reasons why this book was set, um, mm. to sort of promote that idea that, um, <clears throat> yeah, you do get to a stage where you do want to do really nasty things to yourself, and it's not the good path to take. Mm. Um, and I think <clears throat> John's death was um, very, very unexpected, for me anyway, you know, mm. when I read mm. this book, and I thought, I went, you know, well, that's sort of what happens. And it wasn't a blame game, or you know, um, it was just more. This is what our society is doing to their kids. They're putting so much yeah. emphasis on the HSC, on doing well in the HSC, that they're a little bit driving the, the kids to suicide. Because afterwards, well, what is mm. there left? Once you've done your HSC, that's it. Mm-hmm. And it's not the ones who fail the HSC; it's the ones who cannot imagine a future after the HSC, after they've done well with the HSC, who commit suicide. Uh, and that's the tragedy of uh, John's character. I, I remember being really shocked by that too. I wasn't expecting it. And I, you know, being the kind of little girl or teenager that I was, I, I much preferred John to Jacob because he was a good boy. Um, um, but I remember being shocked by that and, and not actually, again, being used to books that dealt with those sorts of things um, and being quite, um, I don't know, confronted by that idea that somebody on the surface could have everything going on for them but underneath could be profoundly mentally unstable or mentally ill. That was quite a kind of shock to my teenage self. Mm. Is suicide something that YA books are still dealing with and are they dealing with it in different ways or better ways, do you think? I think that YA as a genre deals with those kind of provocative social issues. Mm. It deals with things like drug use and suicide. Um, And I think that Youth suicide is really topical mm. at the moment. Mm. Jennifer Niven's about to come to the Sydney Writers Festival and her novel, All the Bright Places, is about a, mm-hmm. a kid with bipolar mm-hmm. who commits suicide. The 13 Reasons Why. Subject of our, of our previous episode, uh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I think, it's very, I think it's very topical. And I think that that's good because mm. the, the, the statistics show mm. that it's young people um, who do commit suicide at a much higher rate. So I, I think that... Um, yeah, there's a there's a constant kind of attempt by YA writers to try and explore and understand mm. why that might happen. Um, yeah, it remains topical. One thing I think that it, though that's interesting from my memory, it's his suicide is always pinned to HSC stress rather than to mental illness. I wonder if mm. that would be different in YA today. Yeah, I, th- I think that's mental illness has still been somewhat of a taboo but actually mm. again the Jennifer Niven novel All the Bright Places is told from the perspective of a character with bipolar mm. and I think it's been kind of heralded as groundbreaking because you, you don't see that very often. Yeah uh, I think that's um that's quite interesting that that's still something that we perhaps haven't grappled with mm. in YA as much as we should mm. and again with the I suppose that's kind of similar to what you were saying about how YA is still grounded in that kind of um assimilationist notion so mm. I think that there's still perhaps more to be done in area of YA fiction and catching up to the times. That's probably right. Um, I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Victoria. And thank you so much to Jimmy. Um, I think we all found that even if we have different reactions to this book, we all had something we could share and talk about and discuss, so that was great. Um, All right, guys, that's all we have time for, so I'll see you next time. Thank you.